still raining. Hopefully it's not too distracting. I decided that if I was going to wait for it to stop raining, I would never record. So I read the latest monthly, so you don't have to. It's actually got some pretty great stuff in it. There's a really great article by Alison Crogan about back-to-back theatre. feel bad that I've never even heard of back-to-back. Whenever I read something of Alison Crogan's, I just have once again that realisation like this lady can really write. This is how she starts the piece. Those who think of theatre as something more than a subset of the entertainment industry know that every collaboration is a rehearsal for utopia. Embedded in its heart is a gamble on human possibility. How we as a community, as a nation, as a species might work or play together how we might negotiate difference, how we might find through each other a better way to be ourselves, how together we might make something out of nothing. I mean, this is just like 1,500 words on a theatre company. She doesn't need to start like that. But I read that and I just thought, God, that, yeah, thanks for summing up the last five years of my life. Like that is, that is what trying to make work together is. And that's why it is so painful sometimes. There are a couple of other really good pieces in this issue. There is also a weird piece by Gerald Manane about the ideal reader, which, look, if I'm honest, I didn't really understand. I've never read any Manane and I'm not very excited to do so. And this idea that he has of an ideal reader, which is, as he puts it, an actual personage, not a person, a personage, a female who may or may not exist right now, who will fully understand what his project is. That seems to be his measure of his own writing, is whether this ideal reader gets it or not. That's, that's about as much as I could glean from that piece. And maybe someone else who's read it, or who has read any Mernane at all, can uh, can explain it to me a little better. But the piece that I want to talk about today is by Sarah Holland Batt, the poet and critic. It's a piece titled Australians All Let Us Read Verse. And essentially, it is a call for a poet laureate for Australia. Sarah points out that we have had one poet laureate. I didn't actually realise this, but we have had a poet laureate, a guy called Michael Massey Robinson. Michael Massey Robinson was doing his thing so long ago that he was paid in cows for his services by Governor Lachlan Macquarie. So it has been a while since we've had a Poet Laureate in Australia. Here's how Sarah Hollenbatt makes the case for a new Poet Laureate. She says, writers must be returned to greater primacy in public life not only because the state is failing in its obligations to support Australian writers and their interests, but also because the most eloquent advocates for literature, including its deep pleasures and provocations, will always be writers themselves. The most obvious way the government could signal an end to the era of stingy paternalism and announce a serious respect for Australian writers and their contributions to our cultural life is through the establishment and ongoing funding of the Office of Poet Laureate, 
to be administered by the National Library of Australia. I was quite shocked when I got to that part of the article and realised that not only was she calling for a Poet Laureate position to be established, but that the NLA should administer it. I think I I wonder about that because I used to work at the NLA <laughs> and I just remember uh, some of the people that I used to work with. I mean, look, I wasn't doing like high-level um, cultural administration. I was processing books into the catalogue. But, yeah, look, the NLA is a special, special place. I love it. Um, if I still lived in Canberra, I would probably still work there. The way that Sarah makes a case for the work that the Poet Laureate could do is she says, a laureate could challenge and expand the public consciousness about the perspectives and voices that are part of Australia's contemporary fabric and play an important role in cultural diplomacy overseas, offering Australian writers a much needed presence in world literature. And at the end of the article, she says, it's a critical step in Australia's cultural maturation for the state to recognise that writers' voices and contributions, politically palatable or not, are worth hearing. The Albanese government can and should have the courage to effect that change. I am hoping to talk to Sarah Hollenbat on here soon, so possibly I should wait and ask her directly about this when I get that chance. But what I will say for now is that I had a strange, or maybe not so strange, reaction to this idea. Rather than thinking about all the possibility and all those things that Sarah mentions about how a poet laureate could centre poetry in Australia and communicate its value out to the world, I mean, this is the way I'm wired, right? I just kept thinking, but who? Who, who would do that job? Who would do that job in a country that hates success as much as Australia does and only allows recognition under these very particular circumstances? Only a certain kind of person is allowed to succeed and only so much. And you might argue that point with me. You're very welcome to. I I may well be stuck in the past, but I don't see huge amounts of evidence that tall poppy syndrome is abating in any way. Think about the person who would be in that role, not just at the moment of their laureateship being announced. I'm hoping laureateship is a word. I'm, I'm saying it is. We'd have that moment... We'd, we'd have our, our second ever Poet Laureate. Probably most people would say it's our first proper Poet Laureate. And there would be fanfare and celebration. But what about six, nine months down the line when all the pressure and expectation on that person starts to turn out to have been inevitably too much? Who would want to take up that position I mean, can you think of any names? I can think of people who would want it, who I wouldn't want to have it, and then I can think of people 
who I would want to give it to who would turn around and say, absolutely not. I am not doing that job and I would not blame them. But that's now. Rewind just 10 years back to 2012. The answer to these questions would have been very, very easy. There was someone who, even though he said he would refuse the role if he was offered it, if there was an Australian Poet Laureate, if that was a real job, it 100% would have gone to this guy. Um, he was very good company, was Lisa, and uh, um, a, a great in, encourager in a very, what was then a very different world, the, the rather uh, sparsely populated world of uh, Australian poetry. And uh, he was sort of seen as the, uh, the emperor. <laughs> Les Murray, 1938 to 2019. I really, really wish I could find, I know there's a clip somewhere, I think it's on Australian Story, but I couldn't find it, of Kim Beasley sitting down with Les Murray around about the time that it looked like Beasley was going to be Prime Minister. And they're sitting together and they're having a great old chat and Beasley is saying, look, mate, soon as they make me PM, I'm going to make you Poet Laureate. And, you know, he's making that promise on camera on presumably the ABC. And I remember watching that and thinking, oh, my God, this is so arbitrary. That's the funny thing about this. You know, the, the article, Sarah Hollenbatt's article, ends with this call to the Albanese government to step up and make this change. But it is a little bit chilling to think about how this is just the Prime Minister at the Times call, they just decide who they want their Poet Laureate to be. Who is Albo going to pick for his Poet Laureate? That little clip from before is Les Murray talking about Kenneth Slesser at UTS back in 2010 and listening to him talk and thinking about the fact that I think we can agree that Murray was not the most popular poet in Australia among poets, you know. So I'm sure many people listening to this would say there is no way we would have let him be Poet Laureate. But in 2010, 2012, 1995, um, who else would you have put in that role? As long as Murray was alive he would have been the Poet Laureate. I can remember when I interviewed Alan Wern, he was talking about talking to people from overseas and them asking, you know, the way he put it was, who's your poet? And his answer was, oh, Murray. Thinking about this sent me in another direction too. I was thinking, you know, if you could find somebody who actually wanted to do this work, who wanted to be... Australia's Poet Laureate in 2022. Maybe five people turn it down and then the sixth person says, all right, I'll do it. What would they have to do to make them a success? In the article, Sarah Hollenbatt says, a laureate could challenge and expand the public consciousness about the perspectives and voices that are part of Australia's contemporary fabric. What would that look like? Concretely, what would you want to see 
at the end of their term? What evidence would you need to say, well, that worked, that was worth it. I'm glad we have a Poet Laureate now. And that got me thinking too about what about the poet themselves? The person who actually said yes to this role. Would being Australia's Poet Laureate make them a success in their own eyes? Would it mean success or would it be a curse? I'm saying nothing because you've all exhausted every expression you have. (laughs) So it's a great honor and a pleasure for me to present to you the five elegant and talented women who are nominated for the best achievement by an actress this evening. They are... I mean, where do you measure your own success from? I'm in kind of a weird spot at the moment because I am about to turn 40. I I feel like I've been about to turn 40 for five years. Um, Seems to be taking forever. (laughs) Uh, I have a book out. I have a chapbook out. I've had extremely medium success with both of those things. I've been making this show for a number of years. I was thinking about this word success and thinking, okay, well, what, what markers would I need to say I had succeeded? Because when I started writing, I know that I thought that just having a book would be just about the best thing in the whole world. And in many ways it is. I still remember getting that email from Jess and trying to get my brain to to slow down long enough to appreciate the moment, to let it sink in what was actually happening. Absolutely, it felt like success. I've been sitting with this collection of Horace. This translation was published in the early 70s by a guy with a very amusing name, Burton Raffle. His translations are pretty loose, I think. Uh, I've found other ones that are much more metrical and probably closer to the original, but I've really been enjoying this one. It's it's loose and easy and, and rangy, and I feel like... It, it feels like a real person speaking. And the very first ode in the collection is about exactly this. It's Horace essentially laying out what he wants from his life. And towards the end of the ode, he says, some men long for tents and battle formations and bugles and trumpets and all the bloody fighting that the mothers of men hate. Hunters forget their wives running in the snow, chasing a deer while their hounds bay, prodding spears at a wild boar smashing out fine-spun nets. But I, Mycenas, I want only ivy wreaths, the prizes poets earn. Did you have much to do with him after he gave up poetry or after he finished? All of my acquaintance with Slessor was after he gave up poetry. He gave it up probably after uh, this poem. Uh, I shouldn't have shut the book, should I? Five Bills was his masterpiece. Which about yeah. my, late late thirty eight or early thirty nine, I don't know exactly which. Mm. Then there were two more poems that he he, he kept in uh, 
uh, in his hundred poems. One was called An Inscription for Dog River, which is a, a searing little uh, contemptuous dis dismissal of uh, General Blaney, mm. whom he regarded as a, as a creep. And he was right. Uh, and uh, Beach Burial. Mm. The one that starts softly and humbly to the Gulf of Arabs. Softly and humbly to the Gulf of Arabs, the convoys of dead sailors come. At night they sway and wander in the waters far under, but morning rolls them in the foam. Between the sob and clubbing of the gunfire, someone, it seems, has time for this. To pluck them from the shallows, and bury them in burrows and tread the sand upon their nakedness. In this interview that I am shamelessly stealing from, uh, sorry UTS, please, please don't come for me, Les Murray says that Slesser used to say after giving up poetry that he was an extinct volcano. Slesser died with some recognition, he did have an OBE, after all. But apart from that, uh, there wasn't a great deal. There's a street in Canberra named after him. There's a park in Chatswood named after him. He's on the HSC. There's a plaque dedicated to him on the Sydney Writers' Walk at Circular Quay. And he did live long enough to see... John Olson's Five Bells, painted after his poem. Les Murray also emphasises how kind Slesser was. He says he couldn't write a review unless he could praise the writer. I don't get the sense of a fame recognition-hungry person. I wonder if, having given up, having turned into an extinct volcano... I wonder if he died feeling like he had succeeded. It's where you measure it from, though, isn't it? I found, when I was up in Sydney, I found uh, David Brooks collected 1983 to 2002, walking to Point Clear. And so at some point, David Brooks wrote this very short poem, which is just called So Little. Five years before the end of the century, and the poetry still no easier. Subjects still faltering. Images still fleeting the grasp. The weight of the body shifting. Emphasis all falling differently. Who would have thought so much could come to so little? A subtler sense of the indefinite article. Infinitives that will not be split by anything. Patience, work, suffering, anger, not even love. But it's, it's where you measure it from. Because David Brooks would have written that before he wrote his next two collections. And I know from having had the chance to talk to him that he looked back on a lot of his earlier work from a very, very different perspective because his, his view on life and his ethics changed a lot. The success that he is talking about in that poem might not even have been relevant to him 10 years after 
Five bells. Time that is moved by little fidget wheels is not my time, the flood that does not flow. Between the double and the single bell of a ship's hour, between a round of bells from a dark warship riding there below, time that is moved by little fidget wheels is not my time, the flood that does not flow. Between the double and the single bell of a ship's hour, between a round of bells from the dark warship riding there below, I have lived many lives, and this one life of Joe, long dead, who lives between five bells. Deep and dissolving verticals of light ferry the falls of moonshine down. Five bells coldly rung out in a machine's voice. Night and water pour to one rip of darkness. The harbour floats in the air. The cross hangs upside down in water. Why do I think of you, dead man? Why thieve these profitless lodgings from the flukes of thought anchored in time? You have gone from earth, gone even from the meaning of a name. Yet something's there. Something forms its lips and hits and cries against the ports of space, beating their sides to make its fury heard. Are you shouting at me, dead man? And tried to hear your voice. But all I heard was a boat's whistle and the scraping squeal of seabirds' voices far away. And bells, five bells. Five bells coldly ringing out. Five bells. Yeah. Rich stuff, isn't it? At some point in this conversation, Les Murray says, five bells has been equaled, but it's never been topped. And then the two people interviewing him are asking, oh, who's equaled it? And he says, oh, I'd have to scratch around and... And come up with a proper answer to that. <laughs> Unlike Kenneth Slesser, Les Murray's list of awards is very long. In fact, his very first award in 1984 was the Kenneth Slesser Prize for Poetry. In 89, he got the Order of Australia. He won the Slesser again in 93. He got the T.S. Eliot Prize in 96. In 98, he got the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. The list just goes on. And goddamn, he published a lot of books. Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's a lot of books on that list. My favourite line on success in writing is not from a poet, but a non-fiction writer. Truman Capote starts out his book, Answered Prayers, with a quote from St. Teresa. More tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. Talk about being cursed with success, right? Trying to bring that book together, answered prayers, basically killed him. Trying to write the follow-up to In Cold Blood. And in the process of trying to write it and putting out the chapters one by one, Capote also alienated all his friends but he couldn't stop chasing it. Here's my actual thought on the Poet Laureate thing. We've had one so far who was paid in cows, so we can probably stand to have more than one if we're going to have a Poet Laureate at all, right? Let's have at least three. 
let's not put one person up there on their own. Let's have a bunch of people together working as Poet Laureate for a while. And let's not give them any jobs to do. Let's let them all do exactly what they want. And let's give them what no poet in Australia currently has. A year of income with no agenda. They don't have to teach any classes. They don't have to produce any work. They don't have to go on any kind of speaking tour and stand next to the Prime Minister for photo opportunities. Let's just let them hang out. Back to what Alison Crogan was saying. Let's let them think about how we might work and play together, how we might make something out of nothing. This interview with Les Murray is, again, stolen from UTS. Uh, it was when he was the Cal Writer-in-Residence at the university. And at the end, they refer to Les Murray's idea of the poet as dairy farmer. And they start joking about the fact that this residency was a very generous cow. And Les Murray completely unashamedly sits there and says, the money's been great. And I haven't had to do very much. I'm still astounded by something you said earlier, which is you, you in, in, as, in much as admitted that the sacrifices, or let's say the pain, that your career has brought you has not been worth it. Would that be a, a fair statement of what you said earlier? I don't know how else you'd interpret saying it's been oh. so painful. If I had it to do it again, I wouldn't. Or I never would have chosen this life. This life. I think if I had it to do again, I wouldn't do it, no. Back to Horace. This is a much later poem, one of the epistles. At this point in his life, Horace kind of knows that he is kind of a big deal. He knows that his poems are probably going to end up on the school curriculum and that his work is going to outlast him. But he doesn't have straightforward feelings about this. This is what he writes. Book, you're staring wistful at the gods of buying and selling. Two-faced gods of the marketplace, you're waiting to lie smooth and eager and young, open for sale. You hate decent bookshelves, closed and modest. You want the world to see you. You sing the public life, though I never taught you that song. You're itching to get there. Go, go. Once you're out, you'll never come back. Oh, what have I done? Oh, misery. Oh, what did I think I wanted? You'll cry when someone insults you, when you're thrown into a corner, squeezed like a sardine, when your lover, bored, lies back and snores. And still, if I see straight and true even hating your stupid behaviour as I do, still Rome will love you as long as you're young. After your hide grows dirty, thumbed by vulgar hands, you'll lie in the dark and moths will eat you. Or they'll ship you down to Africa or off to Spain. You were deaf when I told you, and I'll laugh, book, like the angry man who shoved his stubborn donkey over a cliff. Who wants to save a donkey against his will? 
And this, this too, book, you'll turn grey and old and stutter while schoolboys in tiny schools at the edge of the city fumble out your A and B and C. And still, when some temperate sun brings you more readers, tell them who I was. Son of a freeman, taught to fly on wings too wide for my nest. So add to my talent what you take from my birth. Tell how the great of Rome smiled at me in peace and in war. Tell that Quintus Horatius Flaccus was a small man, grey far too soon, loving the sun, easily angry and easily quieted down. And if anyone thinks how old I was, say that Lollius was consul and Lepidus was consul and I'd seen 44 Decembers when they sat in state in Rome. He was only 44. What the fuck? Of all, of all poets, he's one of the few that I come back to. Um, Most poets, I think, oh yeah, I, I outlived him. <laughs> I outdid him by about 1968. <laughs> or uh, I uh, digested her by about 1971. 